Hello, and welcome to the L. Ron Hubbard Theater and this very special edition of the Writers and Illustrators of the Feature podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. For those of you familiar with this podcast, it is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you're a first-time listener, I hope you enjoy it and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen on. We are in the middle of the 39th year of the L. Ron Hubbard Writers and Illustrators of the Future Workshop Week, and tonight we are here with our writer and illustrator winners and writer and contest judges amongst the audience. At this point, I would like to turn the stage over to the contest director, Joni Labaki, to start things off. Over to you, Joni. Good evening, and welcome to the L. Ron Hubbard Theater! Tonight, we are honored to present to the winners and the judges and special guests of L. Ron Hubbard's Writers of the Future, Volume 39. We have a very special L. Ron Hubbard Pulp Fiction story performed by an amazing cast. And I would like to bring out the director of that cast who will introduce the story to you and the cast, Mr. R.F. Daly. If I Were You is a tale of magical realism set in a circus. It was first published in February of 1940 in an all-fiction magazine entitled Five Novels Monthly. The mystery and lore of the supernatural have captured the imagination of people everywhere for countless centuries. As a boy, Ron had encountered the craft of an old Blackfoot Indian medicine man in Montana. When he was older, he became a special guest in the sacred temples of the western hills of China. While in Guam, he learned the island lore of the Chamorro natives, and later, while in the Caribbean, he even witnessed displays of voodoo. Then, too, Ron was well-studied in the philosophies of Hume, Berkeley, Kant, and Spinoza, quite in addition to the Veda. Keep in mind during this story that the idea of projecting one's life essence into far realms and ranges has roots steeped in those philosophies. And with that, we give you tonight's show, starring Nancy Cartwright as Little Tom Little, Kelly Daniels as The Professor, Jim Meskimen as Hermann Schmidt, Noel North as Maisie Little, Tamara Meskimen as Mrs. Johnson, Taylor Meskimen, there's a lot of Meskimens in this show, as Betty Gordon, Neil Angevine as Jerry Gordon, and I, R.F. Daly, am your narrator. If I Were You, by L. Ron Hubbard. Fittingly, it was a dark and blustery night when the professor died. The professor managed an evil smile. She had sent half an hour since for Little Tom Little, king of the midgets, and as she waited, her thoughts roamed over the past, the better to savor what she was about to do. The professor had come as a palm reader. That the professor did possess some remarkable power was apparent to all. For no matter how much anger might be uttered against her for driving clients into hysteria, no man had ever been able to approach those eyes. No man, that is, but little Tom Little. Just how this was, even the professor could not tell, but from the first, little Tom Little, an ace in the heartless art of mimicry, had found humor in the professor and had won laughter by mocking her. The professor had not forgotten that a man just 30 inches tall had held her up to ridicule for months. She had said nothing. But she was dying now, and she was glad to die. In dying, she would find herself at last. But she could not forget little Tom Little, no. She would remember little Tom Little with a legacy. She had already made out the paper. Someone was coming up the aisle of the car, and then the doorknob rattled, and little Tom Little entered the stateroom. Little Tom Little's handsome self, usually so gay, was now steeped in seriousness. The professor could not last long. He was 
repelled, as always, by those filmed eyes. And for little Tom was not a brave man for all his front. He waited for the professor to speak. You are wondering why I have sent for you. In your mind, you are turning over the reasons for this. I must put you at ease, for I have always respected you. Yes, yes, I have seen much to admire in you. On the lot about me, men are afraid. They spread away from me when I approach. But you, you were brave, Tom Little. You did not cower away. You had steel enough in you not only to meet me and speak to me, but you also had courage enough to risk my wrath, a thing which all other men feared. It was not courage. You just imagined. No, no, I did not imagine. Men slink from me for a peculiar reason, little Tom. They slink away from me because I impel them. They slink from me because I impel them. <laughs> yes, that is the truth. I force them away. I want nothing to do with men, for I loathe all mankind. I impelled them, little Tom Little, long before now. You must have realized that I command strange and subtle arts beyond the understanding of these foolish and material slaves of their own desires. Whatever little Tom had expected to hear from a dying woman, this was certainly not it. Hmm. By such command, I am now able to leave this world for one far better, knowing exactly where I am going. But behind me, I shall leave a little more than a corpse. I have a few things here. Oh, you're not gonna die? <laughs> if I believed that, I should be very sad. But to return to why I brought you here, you must know that I was able unable to make any impression upon you. Well, I never felt any. That is it. I cannot touch you. And that means that you have it subconsciously in your power to handle and control all phases of the black arts. Me? You, <laughs> and I appreciate this. I respect you for it. I have a generous heart, little Tom, for I am a learned woman and can understand all things behind me. I shall leave my books. They are ancient and rare, and most of them in mystic languages. But I have translated many of the passages into English. These volumes contain the black lore of the ancient peoples of the East. Only a few men have any notion, whatever, of the depths of such wisdom, of the power to be gained through its use. And you, little Tom, you 
are to be my heir. Paper here is witnessed. I give it to you. Little Tom took the sheet and glanced wonderingly from it to the professor. You did not believe I was truly your friend. Now, what greater proof is there than this legacy so freely given? Does, oh. that, does that prove my good regard, little Tom? Well, uh, yes, sure. When I am dead, then add my trunks to your own baggage. Study my volumes well. Can I give you any greater gift than wisdom? Uh, I, I don't know what to say. Th 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 this is so much. This oh, do not mention it, please. It is a little thing, for I shall need them no longer. Now go for a few minutes, the minutes that remain to me. I wish to concentrate all my powers upon the world which lies awaiting me. Little Tom Little was still so astonished that he stumbled going to the door. He was upset to such an extent that he went down the train, not remembering to get off and seek his own car. And so it was that he opened the door to Hermann Schmidt's private car and was halfway down it before he realized where he was. And then it was too late. Hermann Schmidt, his ringmaster of Johnson's super shows, was known to have the temper of a drill sergeant. He lunged forward and grabbed little Tom, lifting him bodily three feet off the floor as a doll. So, you are spying! And little Tom was shaken so violently that he could not have answered even in this instant of terror. He could not comprehend why Schmidt should be so mad. Uh, you think this is a runway? Uh, you come in? Maybe you think you own the show, huh? Maybe you just bought it. Maybe Mrs. Johnson just to you gave it. A lesson you need, you tenth of a human being. And as though he was putting out a cat, he rushed out the door. Little Tom, dangling high, and with a final ferocious shake, lifted him over the edge and let him fall eight feet down into the mud. Little Tom dazedly pried himself out of the mud. In him, a rage was kindled. Maybe... If I have to be a midget another minute, I'll use my stretcher on myself. I'm sick of it. Oh, but why? You're a genius, Tommy. Of all the sideshows, yours and mine draws best. You know how to keep them. Keep them? Who wants to keep them? Who wants to stand up here day after day and packed up against the stage, rubbering and giggling and sweating and saying, Oh, ain't he cute, Joe? And ain't she the dearest thing, Martha? Why do they like us? Huh? I'll tell you why. Because we're freaks. Yeah, it isn't because we're good. It isn't because I give them a show. I'm a freak. See? A freak. The outburst subsided, and Maisie patted his shoulder consolingly. Tommy, it's better to be the best midget star in the world than a failure as a big person. No, it's not. I'd rather dig ditches if I could stand up and look my fellow man in the eye instead of examining his shins. But, Tommy, that's senseless. No matter how hard you wish it, it will never come true. You're a midget and a very handsome one. And you're an artist. How do I know I'm an artist? Hmm? No matter how I work my act, I'll never know that. I'm cute and darling. Tommy, now, if you want to leave the show... No, no, no. Who's talking about leaving the show? I know this business. And not all the schmitz in the world can drive me away. Has he done something to you lately? Him? It's not what he does. It's what he doesn't do. There he is, the ringmaster. Do you think he'll ever notice a midget? 
I've never asked him for a spot in the big top. Time after time, he's almost walked me down. If I were a big person, I, he thinks he's a showman. For all the brass in his voice, I could make a fool out of him in 10 minutes in his own ring. Someday, someday, I'm going to look up the boss and I'm going to say, Mrs. Johnson, I want to be the ringmaster. Oh, so it's that again. Tommy, you know that will never be. Why not? The ringmaster runs the show and I'm tired of being a freak. You wait, Maisie. One of these days, I'll be the ringmaster. Tommy. What? What is the matter now? Tommy, you haven't been reading those books again, have you? What books? Tommy, don't be that way with me. When the professor left you her trunks, she didn't like you any better than she ever had. What of that? Can a woman repent on her deathbed? Yes, Tommy. But did she? Look, let's not get into that. <sighs> she hated you, Tommy. When you used to mimic her palm reading, I could see her watching. She didn't think it was funny. It may be all right with anyone else in the show for you to take off their routine, but it never was with the professor. Now, you've been dreaming again. She did leave me her trunks, didn't she? There's such a thing as vengeance after death, Tommy. Well, sure, but I haven't met her ghost yet. Not her ghost, Tommy. It's those books. Late that night, Maisie lay wide awake and apparently sound asleep, fearfully watching Tommy, the king of midget showmen, who did not want his crown, sitting at the dressing table surrounded by a litter of cracked and weighty tomes. Maisie wanted badly to weep, to cry out, to plead with him. Why had the professor left those books, her entire library, to Tommy? Anything wrong? Nothing. You feel all right, don't you? Yes, certainly. <gasps> Maisie, I've got it. What is it, Tommy? The solution. I said today I was never again to be a midget. Well, I'm not. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I shall be ringmaster of the show. Uh, how? Uh, how? How do you mean, Tommy? Why, it's here. It's all here. This is a treatise on the transmigration of the soul. You understand that, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when a fella kicks off, he enters into another body, see? It's a wonder I never found this before. It's all marked here. And, and there was a slip of paper between the pages. Say, maybe the professor wasn't such a bad egg after all, huh? She said when she left me all this, that she'd indicated one place specially. This must be it. Oh, Tommy, are you sure it, it won't mean? No, it, it says the transmigration of the soul can be affected after death. It is logical to conclude that it can be done in life. It says the only vital thinking portion of man is his soul energy and that it can be projected from one body to another. Maisie, think what this means. Oh, here's how it's done. How simple. All you have to do is miss a few meals, say breakfast and lunch, and then begin your concentration upon the object into which you desire to transfer. Think of it, Maisie. To leave your body and become another person. To put behind you everything you've done wrong, all the things, all the mistakes you've made, and begin all over again in a different guise. Well, well what happens to the other person? Well, naturally, whether he will or no, he's forced to occupy the body he has left or else die. <gasps> Tommy, this is dangerous. And it's so easy. It says here that a man becomes everything he senses, 
even for the briefest of instants. Tommy, Tommy, this is madness. It, oh. it cannot possibly work. Look, Maisie, Maisie, I have not eaten since noon, and it is now nearing midnight. I... What are you going to do? Maisie, look at me. No, no. Look at me, Maisie, Maisie. Do you love me? Oh, Tommy. And then she felt a curious chill, a feeling as though she had risen several feet above herself and now hung suspended over her body in the air. But in a moment, she was again in bed. Okay, it takes practice. Look at me. Look at me, Maisie. Please, Tommy. Mommy, for the love of God that made us. And again, she felt that chill, that feeling of lift. Terror struck her lest she were blind and deaf. With a start, she found herself gazing not at the dressing table from the bed, but at the bed from the dressing table. The big book was heavy against her hand. The curtain of the bed moved as though blown by a gentle breeze. She saw Maisie sit up in the bed. Dazedly, she looked at herself, turned her attention to the body which she now inhabited. She whirled to the mirror and recoiled at the image of Tommy. Tommy was shaken to the last spark of his consciousness. He was propped up on one elbow, staring in disbelief at the nightdress which he clutched. He came to himself and whipped a hand to his head. They stared at each other. Then, silent and numb with awe, when minutes had passed, Tommy laughed shakily. <laughs> oh, you see? Uh, but, but, Tommy, it works! But, but, but Tommy, how, how are we going to get back? Why should we? Oh, it's horrible, Tommy. Undo this terrible spell, please, Tommy. The longing to be herself made her sight dim. There was a whirling motion about her, and she went blind and feelingless. And then she was shivering as herself in the middle of the stateroom, looking at Tommy once more. Suddenly, she threw himself at his feet, trying hard to find the words to tell him that this thing could bring nothing but unhappiness. Tommy hardly noticed her in his excitement. These are the right words to think, then. These words written here. It's true. These years of misery are done. No more do I have to step quickly from the path of the big people and look at a man in his shins. Eye to eye, Maisie. And tomorrow, tomorrow, I shall be ringmaster. Hermann Schmidt sauntered down the cars to the special diner. As he went, everyone bowed low, and in return, Schmidt gave them lofty nods, which held a certain amount of doubt, as though he was not quite sure they existed. He became conscious of someone who had slid into the seat across the table. He knew who it was and repressed a shudder. He doubted whether he could keep on forever avoiding the necessity of fixing a date for their Marriage. Good morning, Mrs. Johnson. How are you today, darling? Uh, very fine. Very fine, Mrs. Johnson. Herman, must we be so formal? After all, we are engaged. Oh, forgive me, my lovely one, but I was so engrossed with affairs. Unless we can show a profit on our balance sheets, uh, we mustn't think of our own private affairs. For I promise... I shall never marry you until I can prove my full worth. But we're doing such good business. Uh, prices are up everywhere. Our feed bill alone is enough to ruin us. And our licenses have doubled, what with sales taxes and all. Ah, my darling, it, uh, it is not good. But I repeat my vow. I shall make a profit before we are man and wife. Oh, Herman... You are so noble. <laughs> he wished desperately for a moment that he had never thought up the idea of proposing to her. But still, he could hold her off a little longer with skill. Never mind, my dear. Just leave all this to me and we'll show a profit yet. Oh, if I didn't have you, Herman. 
Hurriedly, he sought the morning outside the car. He stood for a moment with majesty and then strode through the piles of gear toward the grounds. With the air of a king entering his palace, he climbed into his office. Easing into a seat at the desk, he unlocked the safe at his side and drew out the books. For the next half hour, he made the arts of the show's magicians seem pale. And as he worked, a stiff smile of lofty satisfaction came upon his face. It went away swiftly, however, when there sounded a knock on the door. At which point, he threw the books into the safe and slammed the door. Betty! I didn't come to... to sit down. Yes, well, I knew sooner or later that you'd come to me of your own accord. After all, it isn't fitting that I should always be the one to arrange meetings. I came to tell you this. This wild plan of yours, it can't go on. (laughs) Nonsense. You have been thinking too much. Don't we love each other? Can't you... No! Don't say that, Herman. You haven't any right. I've never told you that I loved you. It is enough that that I love you. (laughs) And my plans are your plans. Before long, we shall leave this show. You shall divorce Gordon and marry me. We'll be rich. And you shall be more famous than you have ever dreamed. It's all crazy. I've been trying to think straight about this, and and I still love Gordon Herman. He may be rough. You know, there was a day when you two had small enough spots in the show. That was a long time ago. I worked hard to become an ace. I'm one of your stars. I I work hard. Mm, True, true. You, You were fortunate in having Gilman kill himself. But, of course, if you insist that you will not go with me, you and Gordon can, of course, go together. And the big cats can stay with me because there's the matter of feed bills for them. And there are many wire acts I can get. Oh, there's a telegram here somewhere from Thomas and Maletto wondering if I could place them. They're high wires. Hire them, then. I can't go on, Herman. Give us back our contracts. ha! <laughs> Ah, I picked you both out of the mud and taught you everything you know. And you talk to me this way. But there's one thing you've forgotten. Jerry Gordon is happy just so long as he is playing games with his beloved big cats. He was ruined once. You know what he did. He blamed you for everything and lushed all the liquor in sight. And he'd have killed you with abuse if I hadn't yanked you up out of nothing to star him with his cats and you on the high wire. He... he didn't mean to be so bad to me. He's a good man, Herman. He fights 40 big cats all together in the arena. And, you know, there isn't another man in the business who can do that. And I have a high wire without a net. And the customers... Without my consent, you and Gordon are nothing. Without his act, he'll drop even lower than he was. When I picked you up and starred you both, it would probably kill him, Betty. And you too. But he loves me, Herman. What's past is past. It's just useless to think of running away with you and divorcing him. Crazy. And yet if you don't, you'll very much wish you had. Of course, you'll go with me, won't you? And leaving after she had gone, Hermann Schmidt appeared a match for more than a dozen mere lion tainers, with no eyes at all for the midget who stood there apparently waiting for someone. Little Tom Little was so filled with excitement that he found great difficulty in breathing. Tommy had armed himself with a small silver whip. He swished it viciously through the air. Schmidt glanced that way, instantly revolted by the midget's image. The two did not exchange a word. The midget's mouth moved as though he talked to himself, and Schmidt looked pop-eyed at such effrontery, and then immediately after, somewhat blank. But after an instant of this, Schmidt, getting a grip on himself, it seemed, 
glanced down to take delighted inventory of his dress. And little Tom Little, so it appeared, was nothing but disturbed by his own garb. Thereupon Schmidt, swinging his crop, and again in a grandiose humor, strolled on his way, and the midget started to run after, moved wanderingly into the shadow of a deserted sideshow tent. Standing in the entrance of the big top, Tommy, as Schmidt, assumed a somewhat critical air and bowed very seldom. It came to him with a slight shock that the people did not fall over themselves to notice him. And when they did, there were scowls. It was a jarring experience to the ex-midget to be scowled upon, for in all his trooping he had never had anything but smiles for greeting. Well, that fellow had to sacrifice something for his position, didn't he? And yet there was an empty feeling in his soul and a growing fright that maybe the world suspected something. Had Maisie talked? Had the professor boasted before her death? Jerry Gordon, riding in a wagon with his pet lion, Bab, had removed his sun hat to swab at the band. When he caught the sight of Schmidt, his scowl was deeper and so filled with suspicion that Tommy was frightened. Betty, the high-wire artist, looked strangely at Schmidt as she went by. There was some kind of warning, though a reluctant one, in her expression. What the devil? Wasn't he Schmidt? The great Schmidt? Ringmaster of the Johnson Super Shows? Yes. Yes, no longer a midget, small enough to be trod under every foot, but a big person and one of the greatest ringmasters in the world. They were afraid of Schmidt. That was it. Schmidt was their master. Now, now... Ah, wasn't he Schmidt? Crossing the lot, he heard a voice call. Finally, he realized that the call was for himself. <clears throat> and he turned with a mimicry of Schmidt's reserved air. Mrs. Johnson had always been ready to laugh at little Tom's jokes. And now, when she saw, he saw her regarding him from her tent entrance with a very much different manner, with a guilty manner altogether quite foreign to the true Schmidt, he approached her. I think that we have a very fine crowd today. Herman. Um, and as the act seems to be in fine shape, I guess if every show we had was as promising as this one, we shall all be rich in no time. Things have been like this for the whole season without us getting anything but poorer. Have you some good news of some sort? Um, well, you can never tell. Oh, you're holding something back. Um, no, 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 honestly, I, I didn't mean anything. It's just going to be a good day, I guess. Maybe, maybe, I better be getting over to the big top to make sure everything is going all right. She looked startled, but he moved away too fast to be stopped. Tommy felt unsettled. He ran a clammy hand over the unaccustomed texture of his face. The things he had begun to find out about Hermann Schmidt were not at all quieting. And though he had already begun to regret this swap, there was still too much glamour in the thought of being a ringmaster not to give the thing a thorough try. So delighted was he at the thought of at last snapping the lash in the big tent to the admiration of all that he quite forgot to think at all of what was happening to himself. Little Tommy Little, now Hermann Schmidt, in the flesh at least. But Schmidt had not forgotten anything. Even in the soul-shattering experience of all of a sudden watching himself flick his crop and walk away, leaving behind a man less than 30 inches tall. Schmidt's first impulse had been to dash after himself, crying out for help. But his coldly logical brain had told him that he would look very silly doing so. For Schmidt, as always, had sized up the situation as a purely abstract problem and was determined to solve it the best he could. 
Schmidt recognized clearly that this extraordinary situation might lead to an exposition of his former self. Therefore, it behooved him, as soon as possible, to obtain the neat cash he had made and wipe out all existing records and letters now in his safe. This done, he would leave the usurper of his true body to face the music. And so it came about that when little Tom Little betook his Schmidtly self up to the steps of the white wagon and inserted a key in the lock, he was not the only one who entered. As the midget slammed the door shut behind him, Tommy leaped afoot, whirling. For Schmidt's malevolent expression, it was plain that something horrible was about to happen. You are going to do something about this? Why should I? I don't know the game, but you won't live long enough to get anything on me. And so saying, he made a sudden motion at a drawer, and Tommy found himself staring at a very large gun in a very steady hand. For an instant, he was very nervous. Go ahead and shoot. This is your body. If you want to mess it up, it is okay with me. Uncertainly, the gun wavered down, inch by inch. Before Schmidt could assert himself again, there came a sharp rap at the door. He could think of only one course. Throw open the safe, snatch up the file cases, cramming his pockets full of letters and notebooks. He backed hastily into the lavatory. Betty flung herself into the room. Herman, he's coming. He saw me leave here this morning, and he's on his way now. He'll tear this place apart. Who? My husband, Herman. For the love of heaven, don't stand there staring. Give me the letters and let me go. My letters, do you hear? He'll find them. Tommy looked dazedly at the lovely girl and then at the gutted safe. Another had entered the wagon. Like a thundercloud which blankets the land in darkness, Mrs. Johnson dimmed the wagon. If I interrupt, forgive me. No, no. You don't understand. Oh, I'm afraid that I do. Entirely too well. This accounts for many things. <laughs> At least some of my people are faithful to me. When I told me that you had come here, I did not want to believe it. But now that I see it with my own eyes... Let me go. You don't understand. He'll kill me if he finds me here. Oh, and quite fitting, too. I shall make certain that I see it. Schmidt, you have five minutes to pack and leave the lot. And if you ever try to get a job with another circus, you'll find that I am still respected in this business. If not by you, then by other companies. Wait! What has happened? What have I done? The only sound in the stillness were the spots in the big top. The show had already begun, and that gay blatting of brass was much out of place in this atmosphere of murder. Jerry Gordon's bronzed chest heaved as he gripped his blank gun and his whip, and his eyes were the look of his own cats, intent upon a kill. Jerry, uh, Jerry, you don't understand. He spurned her, never taking his eyes off the man he took for Schmidt. Tommy had begun to sweat, forgetting his own strength, forgetting that he was no longer 30 inches tall. He backed hastily away from the anger which blasted him. Jerry Gordon moved ahead, cold, intent, plain in his every mood. At the door, a man yelled, Hey, Mrs. Johnson! Mrs. Johnson! Impatiently, they looked around at the clamor and saw two men who between them held a midget helpless in their strong grasps. Ah, uh, we found him dropping out of a back window. He said to watch this place, and this guy's got a mitt full of dough. Tommy, as Schmidt, was not paying much heed to what they were saying. All he saw was Jerry Gordon advancing with the full intention of making hamburger out of him. And then there on the steps, his own true self, wholly unmenaced by whip, gun, and brawn. It was so automatic that he hardly had to think to do it. Just zip, and it was over. Tommy was standing on the steps, once more 30 inches tall, looking with keen relief upon an astounded Schmidt being advanced upon by Jerry Gordon. Let Schmidt get out of his own messes as best he could. Let him be expelled from the camp. To the devil with being a ringmaster, anyhow. Stand where you are, you fool! You've made enough mistakes for one day. What I've done with you, we'll see who is right. <laughs> right. Tell me what you think is wrong. You know already. If I did, I wouldn't ask you. You devil. 
you steal my wife, and then you've got the gall to throw it in my teeth? He started to attack once more, and once more, Schmidt's brute force stopped him, held him in a vice. Your wife? Oh, my, you idiots. Why would I, what would I have to do with your wife? If a performer cannot transact business with me in my office without a foolish husband trailing around for vengeance, well, then the business has changed. Changed more than I want to see it. Bah, you simpleton. She knows that you are failing. She knows that I contemplated throwing out your act in mid-season, contract or no contract. And she came to plead for you. She came to beg me not to break your heart. And because she humbles herself to the likes of you, you are willing to debase her character before all these people, to accuse her of vileness, which she never could have occurred to her in her lovely head. And you call yourself a man, Gordon. You have the nerve to stand before us after that, huh, Gordon? Apologize to Betty, or I'll have your heart. Bewildered, Gordon turned to his wife, but he could read nothing from her tear-stained face but shame, and he read that wrong. Forgive me, Betty. There's a show going on, in case you fail to notice it. For the moment, Gordon, we'll retain you, despite your cesspool suspicions. And because, Mrs. Johnson, you could not run this show at all, were it not for me, I'll accept your apologies and condescend to stay on, at least until you can find another ringmaster and manager. Now clear out while I straighten myself up. Pa, what fools you are. Betty and Gordon sought to leave. Mrs. Johnson, feeling very much ashamed of herself, wrung her hands. Oh, Herman. Uh, yes? Herman, can you forgive me? We'll talk of that later. Clear out and let me change. But the group on the steps stood firm. The two stakers were too single track of mind not to remember that they held a captive. Mrs. Johnson backed into them and almost stepped on Tommy. What are we going to do with this guy? He's got his mitts full of dough. We got him coming out of the back window. Schmidt pushed them back from Tommy and stood there on a higher step looking amusedly down at the midget. Hmm. Oh, the day's take. Yeah, that back window is always open. It would not admit a grown man, but it would certainly let in a midget. I think we have here the reason why we have been losing money with such regularity. Why do you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Lie out of it if you can. Oh, Tommy. I can't believe it. Well, there's the evidence. Listen, you two. Take this fellow into the pad room and hold him until after the show. We'll get the police to look after him after that. All right, boss. Tommy swallowed hard and felt tears of rage welling up. But what could he do? He was the only one who had any true knowledge of Schmidt's defections. But wait. Schmidt had averted disaster only for the moment. What a trick to change around again. Tommy bent a calculating eye upon the ringmaster up there in the entrance of the white wagon... The second Schmidt spoke to him again, Schmidt was done. At that moment, however, Schmidt had other objects of interest and horror of horrors. It was another who spoke to Tommy. I'm sorry about this, kid. I didn't think... Oh, it happened so fast that Tommy could not prevent it. There was a swish and a shudder, and there Tommy was standing, whip in hand, looking down at a helpless midget held fast between two brawny men. And though Tommy did wait for Jerry's protest to be made so as to take full advantage of it and swap back, it struck him suddenly that he was far better off as Jerry Gordon than as either Schmidt or little Tom Little, so uh, let it be. Mind what I say. Hold him fast. You pay, and I'll, and I'll pay plenty if he gets away from you. Count on us. You... Between them, the two stakers hauled away little Tom, little now Gordon. Having gotten out of the scrape so neatly, Tommy himself, now bronzed and strong and tall and handsome, felt quite elated about the matter. He was on the verge of striking a pose and accusing Schmidt of all the crimes he knew the ringmaster guilty of when yet another thing happened. A long, stirring A chord major, that's right, betokened the introduction of an act to the big top. That's your cue! 
You're holding up the show. They're letting your cats into the arena this instant. Hurry, man. Do you want to ruin everything? Tommy was engulfed in a terrible thought. Cats. Big cats. Tawny cats. Lions and tigers with gaping fangs and saber claws waiting for him. Tommy stopped. For he might think of standing up to a big person. He might take a chance or two in his act. But never, never could he envision himself facing one big cat, much less 40. Looking down at himself as they rushed him along, he could not credit himself with his present body's capabilities. Gordon was strong and handsome and sure, but he was strong and handsome and sure in his soul. And there was the difference. How he had failed, Tommy thought. Bodies did not seem to make any difference at all. It was the soul of the man that counted. What he was deep inside him, what courage and daring he might possess. And if he were the biggest man in the world and possessed no strength of soul, he would still be a fumbling fool. He was a big person now. No stronger body existed in all this sawdust land than Gordon's. But without the heart and soul of a lion trainer, the body was so much clay, dependent on the command within it. The man was his soul, not his body. And Tommy hated himself, realizing that he had not the courage to face those beasts. With a gasp, somehow he knew that Maisie was standing by the first tier of seats, had been on the outskirts of the last half hour's events. She had seen and heard all that had passed with Schmidt. For how, Now, how otherwise could she poor Maisie know so definitely that she looked at little Tommy Little now, and not Jerry Gordon? That she did know was written plainly upon her stricken face. And she would have reached for him if Schmidt had not hurled her back. Little Tom Little tried to wrench away and strike Schmidt at that. And in so doing, he discovered another truth. Schmidt understood. He had understood all along. He knew definitely that this was not really Jerry Gordon. He knew that a mere midget would curl up and die in that arena under the trampling of clawed feet. Jerry knew. He knew that Jerry Gordon would also die in the body. Schmidt leaped up before the band snatched the speaker mic and bawled, Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the one and only master of wild beasts in all the circus world, who dares step into the arena with 20 lions and 20 man-eating and ferocious Bengal tigers, which throw deadly enemies of each other, though deadly enemies of man, will be fought to complete obedience by one human being. One man who, alone and without help, will step fearlessly into that arena and conquer with a whip and a gun of blanks the absolutely untamable, carnivorous, ravenous, diabolical, volcanic, tempestuous, murderous terrors of the jungle. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the most fearless man who ever trod our Earth's fair face, Jerry Gordon, Emperor of the Jungle Monarchs, Master of the World's Most Dangerous Animals. Tommy was too much of a showman to run. He was hypnotized by his position, and there was something else. So much was a habit of this body to step forward and enter that arena that his traitorous legs were carrying him straight to the side door. Behind him, in a sudden hush, he heard just one thin cry. He would not look back. It would be dangerous. Out of the run and into the arena spilled the giant cats. Flashing tawny bodies, four and five hundred pounds each brute. Every ounce a demander of blood. It was death, but he had to go through with it. It was death, but with these people and the spotlight, he could not go back. Perhaps he owed that to Gordon. Perhaps this was a last desperate effort to prove himself right, to prove him that being such a big person in size was quite enough, and that the soul mattered not at all. Cowardice. And it had driven him to this and it was not justice now that he should face... Was it not justice, that is, to say that he should not face this crucial test? His hand and arm mechanically cracked that whip and fired the gun. He had forgotten in his horror that he was Jerry Gordon. He might see the size of his arm and might feel the largeness of his body. 
He was himself in his soul, and that was the soul of little Tom Little, midget and coward. With whip and flame, Tommy fought the lion. Stardust stirred beneath his boots, and when the brute reared up and pawed the air, the chair came naturally to his hand. Despite himself, he found that he advanced. To his amazement, the lion pedestaled himself. Tommy could not believe that he had won in this, that the act would run on its usual routine. Just at that point where he was sure he could get through, when he had lost respect for these brutes and the act, his heel caught in an abandoned hoop. Backwards he went, falling heavily. He wanted to slash with the whip and fire the gun, but his act, this act was no fake, nor was it wholly routine, for these were jungle cats from Malaysia and Africa. And to see their trainer down, and down they came. The tent had gone crazy. 5,000 voices had emitted a single sound, and now again there was silence. Men poked unavailingly through the bars. Three fought together all at once, trying to open the door and drag the trainer out. You fools! You fools! Get away from that door! Tommy, through the haze of battle, saw a sight which came into his consciousness more acutely than even the shock of immediate death. Somehow, Jerry Gordon, the real Jerry Gordon, in the image of little Tom Little, had fought away from his captors. And now, seeing his own body threatened in a war upon the sawdust, about to be slaughtered, he too had forgotten his momentary identity. He belonged in that cage, and he was fighting his way to it. Use your gun! And in that instant, the thing was again effective. Tommy could not have helped it if he had tried. But there he stood, safe outside the cage, staring in at Jerry Gordon, all buried beneath the savage cats. Here he was, safe. He had turned the tables again. There was Gordon in his rightful self. Here was he, Tommy. Jerry Gordon beneath the howling hell blazed away hysterically with his revolver, straight up into the bodies of the brutes. Gordon tried to get up, but even he understood that he would never make it. Safe outside, little Tom Little watched. There was something all wrong about this, something horrible. Coward. But he had caused it. He had done this thing to an innocent man. It was too much to bear. With a sharp cry to Gordon, little Tom Little snatched a torch from an attendant's paralyzed hand and slid through the bars. He was shaking so in his terror that he could scarcely keep a grip on the weapon. But he made himself lunge through and forward like a fencer, straight into the face of the tiger which sprang upon Gordon. The brute got the torch halfway down its throat. It, it halted and spun about and leaped away with a yowl of pain. Another tiger sprang and another tiger stopped. Berserk with rage, he completely forgot his size for the first time in his life. Like a small javelin tipped with flame, he sizzled into the press of fighting cats around Gordon. They raked at the torch, they screamed, they reared back and fell over themselves to get out of the way. The arena was empty of cats. The dust hung in the clash of spotlights. The smoke of the torch wreathed upward to blacken Tommy's face. Gordon, lying on his side, groaned and turned a little. And he was still. The bars came down, blocking off the chute. There was no danger now. Tommy let the torch fall and stared down at his small hands. He wondered if he was going to be so very ill. There was a clanging and a clatter, and the door came open, but it was not an attendant. It was Betty. She flung herself down beside Jerry, feeling for his heart, trying to cushion his bleeding head. Men began to swarm into the place. The din out of 5,000 throats came like the sound of diving planes. Jerry, 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 don't die. You can't die. His eyes came open, and he stared dazedly at her. Jerry, Jerry, you were right about Schmidt. I did it. Only God knows why. You were right, and you'll hate me. But, but I'll make it up, Jerry. Honest, I'll make it up. Uh, you think these cuts are anything? Uh, hell, I've been sick for weeks and weeks, but this is all I needed. And limping, he let Betty help him from the arena. Mrs. Johnson was struggling to get through the people who surrounded Tommy. He could not hear what men were saying anyhow. He didn't need what they were saying. I, I, I don't know what to say. Why say anything? He fished in his pockets for a handkerchief, but... All he could find were letters and small books. Suddenly, a great light sizzled through him. He flicked open the first bank book, on which was written Hermann Schmidt. He stared at the list of deposits, at the tens of thousands of dollars Schmidt had saved in three months out of a salary of $1,000 a month. And he stared at a love letter, which began, 
my darling Herman, and ended your Betty. But I hardly know. I, I, after all, it is a criminal offense to steal, and our profits have been missing. What, what am I going to do? Do? And there came Schmidt, all unawed by the scenes which had gone before, having in tow two policemen. Ah, there he is. Yeah, he almost got away, but... <laughs> then seeing that what Tommy had in his hands, Schmidt, always quick, snatched at them so swiftly that Tommy was forced to let go. Uh, now, take him. What he has done just now has, has no bearing on... Uh... Give me that book and that letter, or I'll tear out your heart. Schmidt was on the verge of laughing, but a sharp-toed <gasps> little boot squarely in the shins turned laughter into a yelp and a curse. Schmidt grabbed his injured limb and hopped for an instant. Tommy was up on Schmidt's chest like a steeplejack. He had two thumbs stabbed into Schmidt's eyes like hot pokers. Schmidt knocked him off. Tommy lit like a rubber ball, bellowing his battle cry. Perhaps he had learned something from the tigers, or perhaps Schmidt looked small compared to a lion anyway. Small fists correctly placed, and small boots stabbing sharp, and a small target which moves faster than the eye can follow will always be superior to a slow and heavy brawn. Schmidt gave an agonized wheeze, tried to fend him off, but Tommy had learned well from the tigers, and Schmidt rolled his eyes whitely back into his head and went out cold. Now... Now that he was quiet, Tommy was able to retrieve the bank book and the letter. Tommy handed the book and letter to Mrs. Johnson. She could not understand immediately and did not really get the idea until Tommy roared to the policeman. All right, you two fumbling psychoderms, pachyderms, whatever. If you can get anything through your thick skulls, that's the man you want. Hermann Schmidt. Mrs. Johnson looked from book and letter to Schmidt. And then, as he was beginning to come around, she booted the red waistcoat once more. Get up, you thief! Get up! And as for you two, get that man out of here before I finish what Tommy started. Do you hear? Maisie was gazing at Tommy so hungrily that she almost missed the arena door. As she helped her through, she said in a choked voice, I knew when you were you, Tommy. I knew. And when you jumped in through the bars... Forget it. Forget it. You were right. I was wrong. But I was right, too. You see, because... Because, um, well... If the ghost of the professor is around, I'll bet she's plenty disappointed. She did me a favor, Maisie. She showed me... that I was a selfish fool. A coward. I'm ashamed of myself. I didn't think of you at all when I started this. I won't ever do it again, Maisie. I promise. And you'll come back and be satisfied to be a freak? No! Who said anything about going back? Look up there, Maisie. Look up there. She saw that they stood under the mic platform. She felt a movement at her side and startled, saw Tommy run up the steps. Ladies and gentlemen, whatever may happen in a circus, the show must go on. And it gives me a pleasure, great pleasure to present to you for your entertainment and attraction which we have brought to you at great expense. Bewildered by the turn of events, Maisie looked from Tommy to Mrs. Johnson, but Mrs. Johnson was looking at 5,000 spectators whose attention was riveted upon a minute figure by the mic, a figure whose voice, even more than his bravery, whose handsomeness, even more than his smallness, commanded them. And to Maisie, Mrs. Johnson smiled and very slowly nodded her much wiser head. Thank you for listening. 
Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. I hope you enjoyed this show and good night. Good night.